Hello, I'm Dr. Amalia Gondas Malka. Welcome to Womanity Woman in Unity, the show that celebrates women's milestone achievements in their struggle for liberation, self emancipation, human rights, democracy, and much more. Joining us today from Johannesburg in South Africa is Professor Michelle Ramsey, who is a professor in human genetics, holds the Saatchi Chair for Genomics and Bioinformatics of African Populations at the University of the Witwatersrand and is a director of the Sydney Brenner Institute for Molecular Bioscience and has also won multiple awards. Welcome to the show, Prof Ramsey. Thank you so much, Amelia. Lovely to be with you today. Before we go into talking about the specifics of your areas of work, I'd like to touch briefly on the Sydney Brenner Institute for Molecular Bioscience which I understand is a multidisciplinary research unit institute dedicated to investigating genetic variation amongst African populations and the impact that genetic variation has on health and disease, which perceivably then enables one to pursue precision medicine capabilities for individualized treatment according to a person's genetic makeup. What were some of the underlying reasons for establishing the institute? Yes, the the history of the Institute is is very interesting because it started with conversations in the early 2000s. Um, It was really an attempt for researchers at the University of the Witwatersrand to consolidate work done in the field of molecular bioscience, an attempt for us to, to share ideas and also to share equipment and, you know, experimental apparatus. Um, But it evolved from that into a vision of um, the fact that we can be stronger together. And, um, you know, in about 2006, we put a proposal to the Senate, um, who were then very interested and decided that they would support the founding of the Institute. Um, it went through a ro- long evolution, you know, that we we first needed an interim director, which I happened to be, and then eventually became the full director in 2014. So it's a new institute, and it really is unique in WITS, but also, I think, in South Africa, Um, because as you mentioned, our focus is really on um, genetics and genomics, and really understanding that from an African perspective. We widely collaborative, you know, we, we look outward, we don't look inward. So we collaborate with clinicians, with scientists within the university, but also in South Africa, in Africa and in the world. One of the things that we spoke about offline was that there is a lot of research that happens within America, within Europe, within Asian populations, but not as much happening from an African population perspective. I love the idea that you said stronger together and this capability of pooling through with resources. What would you say that the Institute's impact is on African science in particular? So I think our our impact is really in the field of human genetics. Um, It is true that worldwide, people have studied populations of European origin, now more of Asian origin, but rarely do they study people from Africa in terms of understanding genetic variation, the interaction with the environment, and what the implications may be for health and disease. So I think, you know, our work is important. We don't do it in isolation. 
as I said, we're highly collaborative. We work with groups, you know, across the continent um, because we feel that it's important to highlight the diversity of Africa. You know, we always say to our colleagues, Africa is not a country. You know, it is hugely diverse in terms of its politics, um, in terms of poverty, in terms of diet, in terms of climate, and in terms of genetic variation. So it's very important that, you know, we don't only look at Africa from the perspective of the diaspora, for instance, African Americans, but that we really look at Africans living in Africa. And I think that's the contribution that we make um, from this institute specifically. And, you know, it's more than that. It's not only about the research. It's also about building capacity to do this kind of work in Africa. And that is a lot of, of what um, takes up my time and energy is working with young people and trying to give them opportunities to do big science here. On that note of collaborations and research with different countries on the continent and institutions, can you share with us some of the, the core projects that you're working on and highlight what they're achieving? So one of the wonderful projects that we've been doing for about 10 years now is um, part of a bigger symposium called H3 Africa, and that stands for Human Heredity and Health in Africa. So it's, it's a program that, um, you know, has 40 different projects, you know, covers something like 35 different African countries, and is really aimed at understanding genetic variation and also the impact that it has on health and how we can use this in a translational way to think about, you know, improving the health of the people of Africa through a deeper understanding of this complexity. So we have a project within H3 Africa that has a funny name called Awijan, um, which is not really very important, um, but it is a, a partnership between WITS University and, and an in-depth network to study the genetic and environmental risk factors for cardiometabolic disease. So that is for things like um, obesity, diabetes, hypertension, stroke. And one of the things is that, uh, you know, we work in six communities in four different African countries. We work in Ghana, Burkina Faso, Kenya, South Africa. And what we've shown is that the prevalence of these conditions is different in the different countries. You know, you might say that that's like an added value of the study, which is intended to be about genetics, but it tells us so much more. It tells us about risk factors. It tells us about, you know, when are men more affected than women for certain conditions or the other way around? Because we see lots of differences and we need to try and understand them. Because we always hope that, you know, whatever we generate will in some way feed through or be translated into a public health message that can be used in a country or a community for some kind of intervention. But we say, you know, there is always something new out of Africa. And when we look at the genetics and we look at the genetic association with these very complex diseases, we find new things that have not previously been seen in European populations, despite the fact that they have tested and looked at millions of people. Our relatively small sample of 12,000 is giving us new knowledge, new insights. 
And I think for me, that's that's really exciting. So that's one of the projects that we contribute to and, you know, that we will continue to work on longitudinally because, of course, you want to know what happens to people. A lot of these diseases only have a late onset. So looking at them at one point in time is not enough because you want to know what happens. And, you know, that is part of what we're looking at. So if you can follow that trajectory, you have an opportunity of identifying early disease, intervening, and having a much better outcome for the individual. That is the thing that always fascinates me about research is the ability to look at data in, in new ways, to observe new patterns. And as we said earlier, Africa is not a country. We are not a homogenous mass that we've got all of these different nuances. And when you see these different patterns that are unique to different populations. Yeah. So, so we do talk about them as being diseases of lifestyle. So adjusting lifestyle can help improve the outcome, but I just, uh, you know, I'm, I'm glad that you say non-communicable diseases because we always think of them as being partly genetic. Um, but, you know, we've become so aware of um, mental health in the COVID pandemic and how important this is. And a new project that we started last year with collaborators also in the UK is looking at the genetics of depression in different African populations. And the project that we're working on um, is collecting data and participants in Ethiopia, Nigeria, and Malawi. And we are doing a lot of the genetic work here at the Sidi Brenner and trying to understand if there is a genetic predisposition to depression and whether understanding that might give us clues about new drug targets to treat depression. So I'm really looking forward to that research. And I think there's so much more that we can do. It's incredibly exciting and thinking about the institute you really deal with massive amounts of biological data which I think is categorized under bioinformatics can you tell us a bit more in terms of how you were seeing ways to encourage women to to pursue opportunities in science medicine technology so I think um, you know it starts very early on in school you know young girls being made aware and empowered to follow, you know, their, their um, inclinations if they enjoy biology, mathematics, that sort of thing. And I think, you know, for them to also have role models is really important. And I think at schools, you know, there almost needs to be a conscious um, reinforcement that we shouldn't be gender conscious, conscious when we think about future careers, that we should really let people pursue what they're good at um, because I think sometimes girls are made to feel that they shouldn't, you know, do engineering um, or, you know, sort of pursue certain um, careers. So I think we need to create that awareness very early on that, that that should no longer be a box in which you put a girl or a boy. So I'm just thinking about what some of the other things are. Um, so I'm very happy to say that our data manager at the Sydney Brainer is a woman <laughs> and that we have both, you know, men and women as postdoctoral fellows working on these large amounts of data. Our newest um, postdoctoral fellow is actually a woman from Kenya, 
And uh, what I was really pleased about is, is working with her remotely and then having the discussion about moving to South Africa and understanding how difficult it is at the moment in terms of, you know, getting visas for work and so on and working out a system where she can work remotely, visit us a few times a year. Um, but then, you know, she had a baby. Um, and I thought that was absolutely fabulous and, and took off, you know, maybe just six weeks and was back sort of just because she was curious about the research and wanted to pursue that. <clears throat> and I think we need to be more flexible to also accommodate um, young women and women in the workforce. And, you know, a lot of the work that we do can be done remotely. It doesn't have to be done in person. And that is one way of, I think, enabling the participation of women throughout their lifespan and not limiting them to thinking they have to choose between a career and a family. I think that that's such an important point that you've said on in, in terms of the, the flexibility, the openness, the opportunities of working remotely and being able to incorporate life into your work and not have this, well, I have to make this hard choice and I can't have a family because I want to pursue my career ambitions no, I think that's that's absolutely important. <clears throat> and I always say to the young women that work with me, you know, pregnancy and having children is part of life. And, um, you know, we need to support one another. And I think, you know, also that awareness that, you know, we work in teams. We are individuals and we make our individual contributions, but we need to support one another. And people need different kinds of support at different times during their life or during their, their work and career. So I think, um, you know, that is something to make all of us aware of. And I'm always um, sort of slightly amused when there's a man in a committee who says, sorry, I have to leave to pick up my kids. And everybody thinks, wow, that is great, you know, that men are taking on more responsibility. Whereas, you know, 20 or 30 years ago, if I said that in a committee, everybody would go, she's not serious about her work. Um, you know, she puts other things first. And I think, you know, I've I've always said to those who work with me, family comes first, your health comes first. You know, we have to understand that that has to be accommodated. Um, always within reason, always um, sort of with a support to enable you to do what you need to do. But we, of course, need to be mindful of one another. That's a wonderful culture that you've managed to, to foster and create in the Institute. Prof Ramsey, besides your current roles, which I mentioned in the introduction, and I know that there's, there's many, many more, but you've served as the immediate past president of the African Society of Human Genetics and the International Federation of Human Genetics Societies, as well as co-chair of the International 100,000 Plus Cohorts Consortium and several other structures. I'd imagine that participating in these types of organizations helps shape the future direction of the genetics discipline. Would, would that be true? Well, I think, you know, we all play our part at some level or another. And I always feel um, that, you know, I really like the idea as, as people develop their careers that they start locally and slowly you know, sort of spread out regionally and eventually in the world. And I feel very grateful to have had the opportunity to first, you know, serve on the Southern African Society of Human Genetics, then to lead the African Society, and now to have a role in this international 
100,000 cohorts consortium. And, you know, in many ways, it, it opens my eyes to, you know, what is possible, how things work. And one of the things you realize when you do this is, you know, people are people. It doesn't matter whether they have <clears throat> a really important job or whether they, they are a student or are a support staff. They're all people. And they have their limitations and they also have their extraordinary potential. And so for me, you know, serving on all these committees is really about looking at the potential, both of the people in it, but also of where the organization can go. And one of the things we did in the African Society of Human Genetics is to ensure that we create awareness across the continent. And we do that by having our committee meetings in different countries every year or every 18 months. And that sort of forms a seed for developing human genetics in that particular country. So for the three years that I was the president, uh, we had a meeting in, um, in Senegal first, then in Egypt, and then in Rwanda. And this has enabled me also to build up this network of researchers across the continent. And, you know, I sort of feel that we've become a big family. Because, you know, a few weeks ago, we all met in Cape Town at the International Congress of Human Genetics. And, you know, seeing everybody again in person, and realizing how much we have in common and supporting one another is really a wonderful, wonderful experience. Tapping into that notion of networks and networking, it is an important factor in career development. And as you said, you, know, you, you started out on a local level, then went on to a regional level and now on to international level. But it does seem to be an area of weakness for some women. Based on your experiences, how do you think women can become more effective at building and nurturing their professional network? I think that's so important. Um, you know, I think some women naturally are nurturers and would, you know, sort of have a network of men and women that they they work on. And, you know, sometimes there are women who feel that they can't ask for help or that they don't necessarily want to support other women. And, you know, I think we're not all the same, but I think we, we need to be conscious that men often have a very strong boys club you know they have a network and they support one another and I don't always see <clears throat> women doing the same so when chairing the program committee for this international congress I made a point of ensuring that we had a gender balance among the speakers whether they're at the plenary level invited keynotes that sort of thing you know but we also wanted to make sure that we had a geographic balance so that was interesting and um, you know often in many disciplines, you'd have more prominent men. And it is that the voices of the women are not heard in the same way. So you have to be conscious of that. You have to, to say in this field, who are the people who are working there and who are the women? Let's give them a platform to talk about their research. And so I think um, as women, we need to strengthen our networks with women, also with men. Um, but, we, but we need to make sure that we provide opportunities to other women. Because I think that's what the network is about. It's about looking around and saying, how can I help advance the career of a younger researcher? How can I introduce them to somebody? Or when an opportunity comes to me, how can I hand that opportunity over to one of my younger colleagues, be they male or female? 
But um, but I think we do need to work on those networks and and to strengthen them and be mindful of needs and career development for both men and women. Also, listening to what you're saying, it's it's not a case of just letting uh, a network evolve organically, but it is about actively trying to direct it or actively trying to create pathways. And in particular, when you said opportunity, over the years, we've interviewed hundreds of women on, on the show, and everybody is absolutely capable in their fields. But if they weren't presented with the opportunity, they wouldn't be in the position that they currently occupy. The more I think about it, this access to opportunity is so, so crucial for women's development in their respective fields. I think you're absolutely right. And, you know, I realized that, um, you know, my career took off when I had more opportunity. And what I see often in committees is that um, men talk more, you know, like they want to have their voices heard and that they won't always pause to ask other people their views. So this is one of the things that I do in any committee that I'm in is I make sure that everybody has a chance to say something. And, you know, that's including the shy men, but also all the women around the table, because I think it's so easy to have, you know, a committee that goes on for 20 minutes or 30 minutes and not one female voice is heard. So I think, you know, we also need to to step up and be part of the chairing of committees and, you know, to volunteer and to, to make sure that we get into positions of leadership. Because this is something I learned later in my career is the power of leadership, that that also gives you opportunity because it gives you um, sometimes resources that you wouldn't otherwise have. Because if you are a leader, you have access to the resources and you can make decisions about how they're allocated. And and I think, you know, shying away from leadership means that you don't have the opportunities to make a difference in the same way. So so we need to do that. We need to step up and we shouldn't be, be uh, hesitant about that. We should embrace the opportunities. That is a fantastic insight. Today, we're talking to Professor Michelle Ramsey, who is a professor in human genetics, holds the Sarchi Chair for Genomics and Bioinformatics of African Populations at the University of the Witwatersrand and is a director of the Sydney Brenner Institute for Molecular Bioscience. We would love to receive your comments on Twitter at Womanity Talk. Prof Ramsey, tracking back in time, you were born in South Africa, grew up in South Africa, you completed your schooling in Mexico and Canada. You returned to South Africa to do a BSc in agriculture at the University of Stellenbosch, MSc in microbial genetics and recombinant DNA at the University of Cape Town, and a PhD at Wits University, focusing obviously on human genetics. You had a two-year postdoctoral fellowship at St. Mary's Hospital Medical School in London before returning to Wits. Firstly, what ignited your passion to pursue genetics? <laughs> um, you know, it's always good to reflect on, you know, where did it all start? And I think as a as a young girl, you know, I loved nature. I was the one who was climbing every tree in the garden and, um, you know, looking at the insects, really um, sort of enjoying the world around me. But I think my defining moment in terms of deciding on a career in genetics was at my first year at university at Stellenbosch when we had a course in um, genetics, which was sort of straddling um, botany and um, zoology. 
And we had a young female lecturer. And by the third lecture, I was totally hooked because she told us about um, the laws of Mendel. And Gregor Mendel was a monk who worked in the Czech Republic in a, a village called Brno in the 1800s. And he did experiments with peas and looked at the inheritance of different characteristics, like the shape of the, the pea seed or the color of the flower. And, you know, suddenly it just was so superbly logical that I decided that that was what I wanted to specialize in and that I wanted to do my career in. So going then from plants um, to animal genetics, then to microbial genetics, and eventually ending up in human genetics. And, you know, I've always loved the fact that I'm a science-trained person working in a medical and health environment, because I think there's such synergies between, you know, medical doctors trained in medicine, but then working together with scientists who are trained in a different way. And that together, you know, the work that we can do in terms of research, but also in terms of setting up diagnostic laboratories is really important. You're at the cutting edge of your field. How would you say that education has factored into your development and achievements? So um, I think, you know, my, my education is primarily in South Africa, but at different universities. And I think it's really important for people to understand that there are different cultures and different ways of working. Not that one is better or that one is right and the other one is wrong. It's just that people have different ways of looking at things. And I think as young scientists, the more we're exposed to this, the more we can figure out how we work best. Because I always say um, to young people also, figure out, you know, how you work, how you use your education in terms of what energizes you, because that which energizes you will, you know, keep your curiosity bound and drive you to work better and to do more. I was really fortunate that I landed very early on in my career in an area that really interests me. But I say to others, you know, if, if you're in a place where, you know, you're really not excited when you wake up in the morning and you have to go to work, Think about something else. You know, having an education, a university education, actually opens many doors, and it doesn't have to be in academia. And that is another important thing to say to women is there are options. Look at the options. Don't put on the blinkers. Rather, open your eyes, talk to people, and think about, you know, where your education can be useful. Because we have graduates who work in, you know, insurance in companies that sell equipment, um, you know, some of them work in gaming, you know, some of them uh, go out and do something completely different, but the education that they got still stands them in good stead. And I think that's fantastic, you know, that their education could lead them there. For me, I never dreamt that I would have an, a, a career in academia. That was never as a child, something that I thought about, but I've, I've really enjoyed it so much. And, and I still I'm very excited about the work that we do and can do. Listening to you, key, key points that are highlighted for me are aspects of education being a foundational building block, being open to new concepts and new ideas, uh, diversity, and this notion of transferable skills that you may have studied one stream, but you can take those learnings and reapply them into a completely different environment. And learning is lifelong. 
Oh, absolutely. I feel I learn every day and my students teach me so much. <laughs> um, yeah, absolutely. Our show, Womanity, Woman in Unity, is all about celebrating women's achievements in, in their respective fields. But the reality is that often women encounter challenges as they're trying to progress. Can you share with us some of the obstacles that you've encountered during your career and what you did to overcome them so that we can offer those learnings to some of the women that are listening to us? Uh, I, I feel that I've had so many wonderful opportunities, um, you know, but I think like anybody, there are sort of critical moments in your career where you feel that you haven't had the support. And um, one of those was, you know, when I was a PhD student and, um, you know, we were building a new lab and I was supervising other students. And um, I remember my my family sort of saying to me, but, you know, you're a PhD student, but you're doing all these other things which are not really helping you finish. It's helping, you know, establish a laboratory. I think you should go and talk to your boss. And, you know, I did talk to him and he kind of said, well, um, you know, you're, you're a woman, it shouldn't matter, you know, just do what you need to do. You don't really need an income. You're going to have a husband who will support you. It's not important. And, you know, I often wondered if I was a man and I came to him with this sort of saying, I'm doing all this additional work, I need to be compensated for it, whether he would have uh, behaved in the same way. So I think, um, you know, we, we do need to um, critically evaluate where we are and what we need, and also to compare ourselves to men at the same level and whether, you know, they are treated equally. I think unequal sort of treatment of women is, is still a reality all over the world. And I mean, even at, at strong research institutions abroad, there are problems in terms of career advancement that it seems that women have to do so much more to get to a certain position than do men. And I think often it is because the men are the decision makers or are the directors. And I think, you know, that is why we as women have to make sure that we we take on leadership roles, that we can change a culture because you can do it bottom up, but you also need to do it top down because you don't want to reach that glass ceiling where you feel you can't advance because of the fact that you are a woman. So that's that was, you know, one of the challenges. And um, then another one is sort of in day-to-day um, -day committee um, situations, the issue about having your voice heard, that, you know, so often you'll say something and there won't be any reaction, the conversation goes on, and then five minutes later, a man says the same thing and claims it as their idea. And everybody goes, my goodness, what an amazing idea. And, you know, in some ways we have to call it out. And that's a very hard thing to do. What I realize I can do in a committee is to amplify the voices of the other women in the room. And very recently, there were other young women who were helping amplify my voice, saying, thank you, but she hasn't finished her point. Because I would start a discussion and then they would immediately react, whereas I hadn't finished, you know, sort of developing my idea. And I so appreciated this young woman sitting next to me who just said, please, could she finish? So I think, you know, we need to do that in many situations, um, because I think that's the way that we, we also amplify the voices of women and make sure that they are heard. So, so important. And 
what I've appreciated out of this conversation is not only your personal development and progress you've made, but also the way that you've been able to help open pathways for other women and through support structures and really practical pieces of advice. Prop Ramsey, which women would you say have been role models or influences in your life? Oh, I've been inspired by by so many women. Um, you know, I think very early on in my career, um, there was a cytogeneticist, a woman called Renee Bernstein, who encouraged me to go to conferences and introduced me to people. I think she was extraordinary. Um, I appreciate the uh, mentorship of a Canadian human geneticist, Judith Hall, who was one of the people who first discovered that there is also non-genetic inheritance, which is inheritance of marks that live over the DNA. But she visited South Africa several times, and I, I still know that she is in her 80s, correspond with her and see her in different places. I've been, you know, more recently inspired by um, women across Africa that I work with. And many of those are, you know, 10 or 20 years younger than I am. And people like Polina Tindana, um, Yantina de Vries, um, Rochaya Ndaye from Senegal, um, you know, they all inspire me because I look at, you know, what they do in their environments and also their approach to life, you know, that they can enjoy that, that we don't see um, sort of barriers to our friendship, although we cut across cultures, countries, scenarios. And I feel so inspired by, you know, watching them in terms of what they do in their careers. So, so I guess, you know, many of the, the role models are in my, my um, work life. But of course, you know, they're also personal role models, you know, family members, um, my mother, who at 93 is absolutely extraordinary. And, um, you know, just so many people who inspire me. One question that I ask all my guests on the show is about some of the factors that they feel have contributed towards their success. Some people will talk about faith, values, particular people. What have been some of the key drivers of success for you? I think for me, success has been sort of following a dream, you know, sort of realizing that there's there's something that I want to do. I remember a colleague once saying, Michelle, you don't understand how strong your powers of persuasion are. And, you know, I think that that is one of the things that, that we need to realize that communication, explaining, you know, what you want to achieve, and then uh, figuring out how to do that in a way that is true to your own nature. I'm not a person who's loud, exuberant. You know, I, I'm somebody who, who maybe is a little bit more quiet. Um, I think about things um, and, and then I try and figure out, you know, how I can get other people to be interested in helping me achieve what I need to do. So I think, you know, that that has been important throughout my career is, is figuring out how I can change a situation for the better you know, saying, this is my goal, how am I going to achieve it? Who do I need to bring on board? You know, I think one of the things that I love doing is putting together teams and realizing that, you know, team needs to be diverse to succeed because you want to have different inputs. If we all did the same thing or we're good at the same thing, we couldn't do what we need to do because we need the inputs that are so diverse. So that's really important to me. 
Um, other factors for success, you know, is, I guess, um, responsiveness. And it's responsiveness to opportunity, but it's it's being responsive to every question, no matter, matter who poses it. You know, so I feel very strongly that um, when I manage my day-to-day life in terms of all the emails and things, that I need to give people a response. Because if you don't, you often lose opportunities because you waited too long or you didn't think about it. So even saying, I'm really busy, but I'd love to do this. Can we talk about it in two weeks' time is a good thing. So I think success is about, you know, serendipity, seeing the opportunities when they arise, but then also embracing them and, um, you know, really exploring them. Because I think so often we don't explore the things around us that could be potential opportunities if we don't look at them, we will lose them and they just won't be there. But if we say yes, then we have an opportunity and we can make a difference. So I think that is, you know, one of the elements I think that is probably common to people who are successful. Great insights. And lastly, as we close out our show today, please can you use this platform to share a few words of inspiration, of motivation with girls and women who are listening to us? Uh, This is such a wonderful opportunity and and thank you for having me on your show. I think, you know, to women and and young girls, it is about um, being yourself. You know, I think we have to be true to ourselves and our nature and then understanding, you know, how we can nurture our bodies, but also our spirits, because life is so rich on so many different levels and we have to look after ourselves to make sure that we can contribute to the lives of others and uh, to enriching their lives along the way as we enrich our own. So um, I think it is important to, to think and reflect on what it is that makes you happy, where you want to go, what your dream is, you know, whether it is um, becoming an extraordinary world-renowned scientist or whether it is about helping children who don't have opportunities. I think across all of those, you you need to apply your mind. And if that is your dream, then figure out how you do it, a small step at a time. So, um, you know, I would say pursue your dreams, but make sure that you have fun along the way and that you achieve what your potential is. Such great words of advice. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you so much. I've really enjoyed this conversation. You've been listening to Womanity, Woman in Unity, and we've been talking to Professor Michelle Ramsey, who is a professor in human genetics, holds society chair for genomics and bioinformatics of African populations at the University of the Witwatersrand, and is a director of the Sydney Brenner Institute for Molecular Bioscience.